On this week's podcast, Brother Brzezinski teaches on the prophet of Hosea. Please forgive the audio quality. We will have it back to normal next week. Uh, it's an honor to be here in the young adults teaching. I thank Brother Juan for giving me another opportunity. He hasn't asked me to go home yet. Um, and it's, it's truly an awesome class, and it's an awesome honor to be here, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, and I struggled with the subtitle here. As you can see, it's Mercy Through Betrayal. I would warn you not to try to psychoanalyze this lesson in any way. This is the Word of God. Amen. Now, before we get started, I was talking, as many of you probably know, I live with Mr. Santander. He's a good man. And we got talking the other night, and I asked him about his testimony. And I don't know if any of you guys have heard his testimony, but it's incredible. And I, if you let me, I'd like to share a little bit of it with you. And he came from Mexico. He was working here in the States, and he got uh, burned on the job. And over the course of time, some, some kind of infection or something set in, and he went to the hospital, and they gave him medication, and the medication wasn't working. And it got worse and worse and worse to the point that he was quite concerned about his, his health. He was very concerned. He met an apostolic man who told him, I believe that God can heal you, and I'm going to pray for you. And here's what I want you to do. Just pray to God. Say, God, if you will heal me, I will serve you. And so Sentender went home, and, you know, I'll give him this, I give him credit, because he didn't just go home and say, okay, God, I'll serve you, now heal me. Sentender took it very seriously. He, he thought to himself, I'm getting into something serious. I'm, I'm going to commit to God. So he didn't do it. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was afraid to do it the first day. He goes back the second day, talks to this guy again, and uh, the guy... They pray again, and the guy says, look, go home, tell God you'll serve him, and he'll heal you. The second day, Sentender didn't do it because he understood. This, is, this felt like marriage to him. It felt like I'm making a serious commitment here. This isn't a plaything. This is like I'm committing to God. It's, it is a big deal. It is like marriage. Well, the third day, he finally said, okay, God, if you heal me, I'll serve you. That next morning... He woke up healed. And that's why Santander, he, didn't, he grew up Catholic. His family was not accepting of this change. But because of what God did, God proved himself to him. And that's why he's an apostolic. It's an incredible, I was almost crying when I heard it. I'm like, oh my, so good. But um, that, that is the, uh, in the book of Hosea, that is the relationship that God is using to illustrate uh, his whole message through the book of Hosea. It is the marriage relationship. And I don't know if any of you guys have been to weddings. I avoid them if I can, but sometimes I do have to go to weddings. And, you know, when you see people up at the altar, they're looking into the eyes of their beloved and, and the priest or preacher. We don't say priest. <laughs> father, father, priest. Says to them, you know, will you marry so-and-so and... And, and, you know, in sickness and health, and they're like, yes, yes, yes. They're just so eager to say yes, and they're, they're not even hearing the vows in any way. I mean, it could be in sickness and health. They don't hear any of that. All, all they're hearing is blah, blah, blah. You may kiss. Oh, we may kiss. Yes. But 
you know, I've never yet seen uh, a wedding ceremony where people will say, now, wait a minute, Pastor, what, what's that? When you say sickness, can we get a definition? Does this include Alzheimer's? Because you never see that, do you? Because there's passion there, right? Okay, well, let's get into this. Now, last time I was preaching, I talked about the book of Deuteronomy. And we talked about covenant, and we talked about law, and all of what I said I think was true. But there's something more behind the law than just... Now, God serves different roles throughout the Bible. God serves in roles of king and judge to the people of Israel. That's true. But even in Deuteronomy, there is something deeper there than just judge or lawmaker and law abiders. There was still something deeper there. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 and 10 says, He found him in a desert land, and in the waste howling wilderness he led him about. He instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And literally this phrase that we translate to apple of his eye is meaning like little man of the eye or little maiden of the eye. And the idea here is that when you look, when you're beholding your beloved or you're you're so close to them and you're both looking into each other's eyes and in the reflection of the people, you can see that other person. That's the idea here. And, and this book of Hosea that we're going to talk about is all about the love of God towards his people. Good so far? Now, if you'll hold on with me, I'm going to go through some background, but I think it's valuable information. Uh, so... The book of Amos and Hosea, they're contemporaries of each other. Brother Kilman was really wanting somebody to cover Amos. You're going to? Hallelujah. We will cover Amos. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Sister Troxel. You did have to. Glad you realized it. Um, but they're preaching to the same people, and Amos focuses m more so on the, the failures of the people in a, in a judicial sense, in that they did not live up to the law. Hosea acknowledges this same guilt, but he's kind of a more of a heart kind of guy. He 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 digs into the to the feeling and the emotion of the uh, betrayal of Israel to God. So the historical context of the book of Hosea. I'm going to take you back to King David, and then we had Solomon was the next king, and then Rehoboam, and then these were all part of the lineage of David, and then we have a break. Then we have Jeroboam, who becomes king. And at this time, the northern kingdom is divided from the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. And what he does is he sets up a state-endorsed religion. And it's kind of like Judaism, and then it's, there's just some stuff kind of added in there that it really isn't anything like it. So Jeroboam... Okay, so people would go down to Solomon's temple, which was in Judah, in the south, to worship God. Well, because these two kingdoms are divided, they have two different kings, they're now rivals. Uh, Jeroboam does not want people to go down to the southern kingdom to worship. So he institutes his own places of worship at the far northern end, far southern end of the kingdom. He puts in temples and sets up golden calves. Have you ever seen that before in the Bible? Oh, yeah. He sets up golden calves to be worshipped. But he says that, well, these aren't idols per se. These are symbols of God. So we're worshipping Jehovah, but these are symbols of, of 
Jehovah. So you can worship God with this calf and, and it's all okay. When in reality, this was a symbol that was borrowed from Egypt and this uh, Egyptian God meant, represented renewal of nature. So when I say that this was quasi-Jewish, I mean that there were still a lot of Jewish um, uh, activities that were included. The feasts were the same. Uh, the sacrifices were the same. There was still a priesthood. So a lot of the religion stayed the same. There wasn't a, lot of, a whole lot of quick changes, but there was obviously a shift by putting up those calves. And of course, no going to uh, the Temple of Solomon to worship. So Jeroboam set all of this up, and then of course, when you do that, you can't just change one little thing and not expect more degradation and more um, moral decay to happen. So over time, the people would pick up the worship practices of the heathen nations around them. So even though Jeroboam was a little ways before Hosea, this is the same system that was in place. This is the same moral decay that Hosea was dealing with when he was preaching. So even though they said, yeah, we're worshiping God, it was really kind of a system that was only in name, worshiping God. They worshiped the golden calves, and there was such political shenanigans going on in Israel at this time, and the people, moral decay, spiritual decay, you get the picture. So now enter Hosea. This is where the book begins. And it begins with the very odd request of the prophet Hosea. Hosea 1 and 2 says, And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, to marry a prostitute, and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed a great whoredom departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, which conceived and bare him a son. Now, I think it's a good question to ask, is that fair of God to ask the man of God to go marry a prostitute? I mean, doesn't the Bible say something about being unequally yoked? Brother Ross, what if you went to Pastor Mooney and said, Pastor Mooney, I, I believe God spoke to me. <laughs> okay, but is it fair? Is, I'm kind of playing, but is, is it fair... To, for the man of God to go and do this. I don't think that is really a fair request technically. And of course we know that Gomer is going to, she's a prostitute. She's going to go on and be unfaithful to the man of God. I mean, that seems like if he had any promise in ministry, maybe he was going to go preach general conference. Not after that move, I tell you that. So it kind of ruined, in a way, Hosea's reputation. It ruined a lot of the the protocol and the standard for him. But he goes and does it. However, I want to pose a couple questions. Is it fair? Well, is it fair that God saved Israel out of Egypt and then they set up these golden calves to worship? That's not exactly fair either to God. Is it fair that God blessed them with prosperity and then they took those blessings of prosperity the riches, and they offered them to pagan gods? Well, that's not exactly fair either. So is it fair for God to continue to work with Israel? That's not exactly fair either. So coming from God's standpoint, there's a lot of injustice going on. And the man of God, 
what about him made him obey that kind of a command? And I have a guess. This is me uh, guessing, but I do want to guess that maybe Hosea had a tendency to pray dangerous prayers. And I know this is from the New Testament, but maybe he prayed a prayer like Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Okay, I want to just pause for a moment. This is one of the verses that I've like sat and thought about most, almost of any verse in the Bible. And I've come to the conclusion that if we want to be like God, we have to fellowship with him. That makes sense. And where does God hang out? A lot of times it's in injustice. It's in hurt. It's in people betraying him. That's kind of the place where God hangs out a lot. So if we want to know him, where do we fellowship with him? A lot of times it's in suffering. So perhaps the man of God was praying prayers like that. And God allowed him, okay, you want to get to know me? Here's an aspect, here's a place that I'm at a lot. It's I'm getting cheated on by the people I call my people. So the man of God, I, I don't think he would have been necessarily uns, like kicked out of the salvation, the Lamb's book of life, if he would have struggled with this. But I, I do think that he had a heart and, and obedience enough to do this. And when we talk about spiritual maturity, with all due respect to, um, I think we should pray, of course. I think we should have spiritual disciplines in our lives. And I think that we should have passionate prayer. I was in the prayer room, and no disrespect, there was an earnest young man praying quite loudly and earnestly. And I, I hope God honors him for that. But ultimately, it's obedience that determines. He's, he was praying, and again, no disrespect. God, I want to go farther in you. God, I want to know you more. Well, prayer is good. Fellowship is good. But obedience is what ultimately brings you forward in God. There's no alternative, no workaround for obedience. And of course, Jesus was the man of sorrow. So if we want to be like him, if we want to know him, we may experience what he experiences. So one example of this is Psalm 22. It, now, David prophesies in Psalm 22 about Jesus. We see, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, like when Jesus was on the cross and he was thirsty. He uh, says things, they pierced my hands and feet cast lots from my vestures. So David is clearly prophesying about Jesus. But I don't think that David got up one day and said, I think I'm going to prophesy about Jesus. What I believe is that David had a firsthand experience with suffering and he depended on God and trusted God. And through those firsthand experiences that David was experiencing, the Holy Ghost allowed him to speak things that Jesus would experience through suffering as well. Does that make sense? Yeah that I may know him. Amen. So getting back to Hosea. Uh, in early marriage, I believe that Hosea loved Gomer. I really do. Uh, they got married, and Hosea was the father of the first child we know for sure. And to Hosea, probably never married before, never had a child before. This was his first love. This was his one and only love. I have to believe Hosea developed an 
in a, a deep affection for Gomer. However, uh, well, we won't get there yet, but Gomer, what did she get out of this relationship? She got a lot too. Coming from a life of prostitution, she got societal respect and honor. She got emotional and spiritual stability from the man of God. And she got physical security. She got somebody to be there for her and to take care of her. However, it was not long until Gomer began to distance herself. Probably at first, fairly unperceptibly. And I'm, I'm just supposing in a few reasons. The Bible does not say exactly why she distanced herself from Hosea. But I'm supposing that maybe one reason was she was just unaccustomed to receiving that true love and that intimacy from somebody. Okay, let me just, I don't want to preach too much in this part of the lesson, but I do think, because I have a heart and you have a heart, that sometimes it's difficult for people to be intimate with God. It's difficult to be intimate to an appropriate degree uh, with people. Because it's much easier to keep people at arm's distance and say, you know, I've been hurt before, so just this is as close as I will let you come. Uh, and that's natural. I get it. And I don't want to get like be a psychology person up here. But with the Holy Ghost, we can even do that with the Holy Ghost. We're at the altar and God's moving on us and dealing with us. And we say, up, up, up. Right about there is enough. So when we feel that true love, of God. Intimacy is a tough thing. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. That's between you and God. But I do know that we need to not quench the move of God on our hearts. Perhaps it was the looks that the other ladies of society gave Gomer. You know those looks that ladies give. You ladies know. Uh, you know... <laughs> You know, what are, what are you doing out here hanging your laundry to dry? What are you doing at the well? This is like respectable women and then you, Gomer, you know, you don't belong here. And they wouldn't say it, of course not. But just those glances like, <coughs> who do you think you are? Maybe that was going on. And of course, maybe Gomer just desired to go back to the comfortable. Now, <clears throat> the first child that they had together was said to be by Hosea. The second child that Gomer had, her, uh, the name meaning unloved, is not said to be fathered by Hosea. Maybe Hosea was the father. Maybe he wasn't. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's very likely that this second child was not of Hosea. I, I personally believe that the second and third child were illegitimate children, as far as I can tell. Um. <clears throat> And you can imagine the conversations. What if this second child, what if the hair color was like completely different from Hosea or Gomer? And he's like, how awkward. You know, Gomer, we need to have a conversation here. <laughs> right? How, how tense. How real. How close, close to the heart. And then the third child comes and maybe it's like, wow. There's no question. This one is... Not my people, no kin of mine. This child is completely... <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, like, we won't go there. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, but illegitimate children at this point. And one day, 
Hosea finds that Gomer's completely gone. She leaves, maybe, and we can't say exactly, but here is my thought, that maybe these rendezvous with the old crowd, maybe the getting close to the old, for lack of a better word, pimp that she used to have, maybe Gomer put herself in a compromising situation to where they sold her off into slavery. We know that she was put into slavery probably by the very lovers that she trusted in. And what does God say to the man of God? In Hosea 3.1, God says, Go yet love a woman. Before it was go marry a woman. Now God's saying, Go yet love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So Hosea finds her in a terrible state of slavery, probably prostitution, slavery. He buys her back even though this is his wife. And he pays the price, both silver and just, I believe, some barley or something of like that. Maybe he didn't even have the money to do it. Maybe he had some cash and he had to go borrow part of the money just to buy his own wife back. And when he brings her back, he doesn't say, okay, let's go play house again. At this point, you, you would almost be a fool. You'd, uh, what's the word? There'd be something wrong with you. We'll just say that. If you just pretended at this point like there's nothing wrong and just come sit at my table, we are equals again, and we are going to enjoy each other in a marriage relationship again tomorrow. That's just, that's, that doesn't feel right to us, does it? Um, but what, Ho what Hosea does is he brings her back and restores her. They're still married, but he keeps her separated and as a widow for a period of time. Um, where this ends, though, that it doesn't end in this perpetual widowhood. The idea here is that Hosea still wants her to be his wife. Hosea still loves her. And in Hosea 2, 15 and 16, God says about Israel, She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as the day when she came up out of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bali. Ishi meaning husband or my man. Bali meaning my Baal or my Lord. Husband in the sense of a Lord. So God is saying here that, Israel, I still want you back. I still want you back, not as my subject, not as my someone to possess and rule, but I want you back as someone who's special to me. As the apple of my eye, I want you restored to that relationship. So, the book of Hosea is first and foremost directed to Israel. There was the early love after they came out of Egypt. They fell into spiritual harlotry with other gods. As Gomer went into slavery, we know that there was a slavery and judgment period for the children of Israel, which Hosea prophesies about. We know that there's a period of widowhood and yet a future marriage, a future intimacy between the children of Israel and God. Of course, we have to ask the question, what does this mean for us today? And it's not a stretch to apply this to the church. 
We are his people and we are grafted into the body. So there are lessons that we can apply from this as well. And I want to go back to the golden calves who are worshipped as symbols of God. And I want to read this quote from Francis Schaeffer. I think it's a good one. He says, as Christians, there is no word so meaningless as the word God until it is defined. So two people may talk about God and mean very different things. The ecumenical person may talk about God and mean something completely different to an apostolic talking about God. And you have to be careful. So the calves, even though they were worshipped as God and they were simply symbols of God, those symbols affected and shaped the definition of God. They cannot help but shape the definition of God. So here's an example. We know this picture to be what? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a trinity, a symbol that is used. So if this is the conception or a symbol that we use to talk about God, how does this shape our definition of God? Well, it does a lot. And if you're talking to a Trinitarian and you're both using the word God, but they have this symbol in their mind, are we really talking about the same God? No, because this symbol has shaped the definition of God. So just like the, the calves came from Egypt and their original context was about nature and the renewal of nature, when you worship God through these symbols, you can't separate that from the original context that these idols were used in. Okay, and for this next part, don't blame anybody but me. This is Kevin saying this. This does not reflect the leadership here or anybody else. I blame me. But what would you do if there was a Christian band who was covering Katy Perry songs? Hmm. Well, that'd be interesting. What I would think is that's very interesting because you can't separate the original context that that song was written and performed in, even though it's, well, we're, we're worshiping God, really, because the words aren't that bad. Well, you can't separate the original context. Okay? And I really like this quote from Pastor, so I, he tweeted it just recently. It's just that compromise begets compromise. He said, I have observed that an emptiness is felt when we no longer feel nourished by truth or absolute doctrine, when certitude is lost, then drift begins. Just a little, it may seem small that we begin to bring in things that have questionable contexts. That symbol of the Trinity, that's a Celtic symbol that's used in paganism. You can't separate that original context just because you apply it to God and now it's supposed to be cleaned up. It doesn't work that way. So, compromise begets compromise. Also, <coughs> again, uh, this, is, this is me here, but if I say anything that's offensive, just blame me. But spiritual adultery is seeking satisfaction in unlawful relations. It's bad. Spiritual adultery is bad. But spiritual harlotry is prostituting high possessions for the sake of higher and gain. We have high possessions as apostolic people. I have more patience for somebody who's merely Christian or like they're on TBN and they've never known the truth and, and I see their lifestyle being iffy. But if I see somebody who has tasted this Holy Ghost way and they're prostituting high possessions for gain, I don't really want them on. <laughs> you got to be careful. 
Okay? Amen. And this is a point that I want to, uh, I hope it gets into your spirit and into your heart. Sometimes I think that we can look at, uh, like last week when I talked about Deuteronomy and we have the covenant, and it almost seems in a way that if I just follow the law, then I'm doing okay. But sin is, the issue is much deeper, and sin doesn't just break the law, it doesn't just break covenant, sin breaks God's heart. So we know God, there's, he serves different roles throughout the Bible, he's our creator, He's our king, he's our judge, he's also our father. He says in the book of Hosea, call me husband. I don't just want to be your king, I don't just want to be your judge. I want to be something more. I want fellowship, I want relationship. Let me just read this quote to you by J. Sidlow Baxter. He says, which of these four is not, is it which supplies the fundamental motive and purpose in bringing the human race into existence? Did God create man merely to possess? Did God create merely to reign? Did God create merely to judge? No. These three relationships of creator, king, judge do not supply the basic motive. It is fatherhood, which is ultimate. God created us for fellowship with himself. This means that human sin hurts the great loving heart of God. And I want to pose this idea to you. Do you think that the devil tempts us just because he cares so much about getting us to sin to possess us, necessarily, in and of ourselves because we're so special? Not entirely. I believe that Satan primarily wants to tempt us and get us to be separated from God because we're special to God. And that when God sees someone that he loves bound in sin and separated from him, that hurts God. That kind of reframes the whole sin issue, doesn't it? It's not just a matter of, should I fulfill this lustly desire? It's now, should I hurt God by rejecting him? It reframes it. And, and you can see now, the sick thing that the devil's doing. I'm not giving him any attention and props, but this is about God. This is about a loving God whose heart we should be mindful of. So when people ask questions and say, well, how close can I get without sinning? Is this okay? Can I get this close to sin? How, how would you feel if your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend said, hey, you know, I'm thinking, I kind of want to flirt a little bit with so-and-so. How far can I go without this being a problem? <laughs> that, that makes it real, right? Well, your spirit's wrong. I'd just say, bap, bap. You know, well, you, you ladies should do that, you know. But it's like, what are you thinking, right? That's not, your spirit's off. Your spirit's off if that's the motivation for what you're doing. It should be, how can I please God? It's not rule following, it's in, in, the, in this relationship, there are certainly boundary lines that we would draw and we would say, this is clearly out of bounds and this, this is out of bounds over here. But when, when you're marrying that person, you're not thinking, okay, now tell me again, when we say sickness, is, does this include dementia? Does this include, I'm not changing diapers, okay, this is, no, these people are in love and they don't even think about 
They're not even listening for the details and the letter of the rules and the, all the details of the vows. Now, that doesn't mean the vows are not important, but it does mean that the passion supersedes the rule. The rules are not preeminent to a person who has passion. How long have I gone? Too long? Not long enough? Word to the wise. So this is where I kind of balance things out a little bit. Does that mean that God's role as creator, God's role as king, God's role as judge are abolished just because we're using this metaphor of marriage and we're using this metaphor of father? No, God is still those things. Those things don't go away. God is all of those things at once. And in addition, he wants to have intimacy with us, okay? Two, this is kind of hairy. Brother Juan, stop me. But you can take this metaphor kind of a weird way. You can kind of sexualize your relationship with God. I think there's a definitely a, a boundary there. And I do understand that um, the spiritual and the sexual, we're all adults here, the spiritual and the sexual are not that far apart because you're opening yourself up to closeness with God versus opening yourself up to closeness with another person. But I don't think that we should look at this book of Hosea and try to make something, make our prayers really weird with God. Is that okay? Not that anybody was going there, but I don't think that's what this is intended to do. You know, you hear all kinds of weird things. You know, you hear some people preaching like, uh, I didn't listen to the whole sermon, but as I was researching this lesson, I, there was a Hillsong conference, and he was preaching about Hosea, and they like to just dwell right there and be like, oh, husband, ah, and they just kind of move into this weird spiritual place, and it's like an ocean of spiritual feeling and like a thimble of truth where they're going. Am I making sense? Okay, so... We balance spirit and truth, and we don't want to be wacky weird about this analogy. Um, but here's where I want to emphasize what, what I personally think that this Hosea tells us. Number one, I think it tells us we're all Gomer. We're dirty, unlovable, and incessantly pulled about by our passions. And if I can open up just a little bit. Uh, when I first got in church, I thought you guys were all just way too, I don't know what. I felt so dirty. I felt so in comparison to you guys who dress so nice. And there was such a light in your eyes. And there was just a purity and a cleanness and just something about you people. And I thought to myself, these people are like way up here. And I feel like I am just dirty and despicable and whatever. But in a sense, now that I'm here, I realize, hey, we, are, we were all dirty and despicable. And we all would be dirty and despicable, but for the blood and the mercy of God. So when somebody walks into our class, when somebody walks into our church, you know how they're probably feeling? Probably a lot like Gomer when she was hanging out at the well. Probably thinking to herself, I really don't belong with these Calvary folks. These guys have it together. Look at the cars they drive. Look at the suits that they wear. Look at how holy they are. And the reality is, is that there go I. We're all gomers in a certain way. And none of us have a right to say that we're so much better. 
And none of us have a right to look down at people. I'm not immune to that. We're not immune to that. We can get comfortable in our blessings. And we should, we should be thankful for the blessings that God has given us. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But we also should remember that we are all but gomers, if not for Jesus Christ. So God says, call me husband and no more Lord. I'm thankful that we've been baptized into his body. Now, how, how do people, how does God seek to win back his people Israel? And, and I think this verse tells us. Hosea 2 and 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Possibly the wilderness is affliction. But he says he will allure her. And that word allure, I looked it up, and it means to be open, to persuade. No matter where somebody is, no matter where we are, God is always open. He's persuading. I love what Brother Juan, you said earlier, that if you want to be saved, you can be saved. God is not closed. God is open. And the church needs to be open. What is the heart of Hosea? I don't think Hosea was a foolish man. I don't think Hosea was like a senile old person who had no sense of right and wrong and was just willing to forgive any old thing. I think that Hosea had mercy. He also understood the reality of sin, but he had mercy to a point that he gave so much. His heart broke so much. And God's heart breaks so much for so many lost people around us. And what this has challenged me to do, what this has challenged me to try to get a hold of is a spirit of Hosea that says, I'm going to have mercy on people, no matter what. You guys know that Brother Sleva works with a lot of people. He, he goes out in the highways and the byways and he works with people. And I would imagine that a lot of those people don't care very much about Brother Sleva except for that they can get something out of him. And I don't know how many times Brother Sleva has given his day, his time, a meal, whatever, and invested in people day after day after day just to have them walk out and betray him. I'm sure that that happens. But I believe that that's the heart that God wants us to have. It's a heart that says, I'm going to love you, I'm going to be open, I'm going to persuade you. Because that's what this is about. This isn't just about us coming to church and being saved and being called a husband, although that's part of it. And intimacy with God is part of it. But being willing to work through people's stuff and the patience of God and if we will know him and be like him and have fellowship with him, we can be patient with people too. I don't say that that's easy. I don't say that I'm good at, good at it. But I think that that's the heart of Hosea. I think that's the heart of God. And I think we ought to cultivate that spirit in our lives. So I'm going to end with this. Nobody is too far gone. 
Just bow our heads and pray. Jesus, I love you. We love you. We're thankful for your spirit, God. We're thankful for your word. Jesus, we know that we are yet sinners, if not for you. We know, God, that we have no ability in ourselves to make it to you, but it's by your grace. It's by your mercy. Jesus, I feel challenged by your word, and I pray that your word would sink into our hearts to challenge us to reach for people who we would not necessarily want to reach for, to love people beyond where we even feel comfortable loving people. Because you loved us more than we deserve. And we wouldn't be here except for your mercy and giving us a second and a third and a fourth chance. Lord, we give you the praise and the honor because you're a good God. You're a good king. And we thank you for that, but you're a good father to us. And we want to go beyond just following rules and showing up and doing our duty. But we want to know you. We desire to please you with all that we do.